2: I think what what might happen is that there will still be a huge abstention. I don't expect many more. People talk about um, Ménonchon voters in the first round becoming Marine Le Pen voters in the second round because they talk about similarities in demographics, etc., and because of similarities in demographics similarities in priorities and you know i i mentioned that purchasing power is a big concern for many french at the moment i think 54% of voters named that as their number one concern going into this first round and so i think you know some people have then thought oh maybe national voters in the first round will vote Rupin in the second round that just the numbers don't show that 2017 is is an example of that really not happening i think again it likely won't happen but the abstention is really what makes this an open question and and a more open race than we were expecting a few weeks ago
1: i'm jacob schultz and this is the lawfare podcast april 13th 2022 over the weekend france held the first round of presidential elections for 2022 the result was that the same two candidates as last time will move on to the final round. Incumbent President Emmanuel Macron and far-right challenger Marine Le Pen. To talk through the election results and what comes next, I sat down with Agnès Bloch, a senior research assistant at a D.C.-based think tank where she works on European affairs. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 13th, round one of France's presidential election. All right, so maybe the best place to start is just to recap what the results were over the weekend, and then we can talk a bit about the process to get there, what comes next, and who all these people are.
2: So let's start with the results. Sunday's election, Macron, the president of France um, from La République En Marche, came in first in this first round of the presidential election with 27.85% of the vote. Close behind him at 23.15% was Marine Le Pen of the National Rally, formerly the National Front, the far right, the main far-right party in France. And in third place, and I think we should really get into this because it was, I think, for some a surprise and an interesting result, was the far-left Jean-Luc Mélenchon of La France Insoumise, which gets translated in a lot of different ways. Maybe we can go with France unbowed. And he received 21.95% of the vote. Coming after them were various different candidates who received between seven and the lowest is like 0.5% I have here um, in front of me. And these candidates were Zemmour, another far right candidate, even more extremist than than Marine Le Pen, who's come into the fold in the fall of 2021 um, and previously had not run for office. So we see kind of a similar phenomenon to Macron coming into the fold um, and into the fray in 2017 but of course, hugely different characters. And we can absolutely get into the to the far right in a little bit. Um, Valérie Bécresse of the Republicans um, received 4.78%. And I'd like to just highlight that Les Républicains is one of the main or previously was one of the mainstream parties in France. It was the center right party. And it received really an abysmal percentage of the vote in this first round, less than 5%, and we can talk also about why 5% and getting 5% um, is important in France in this first round. I'll note, and I won't go through everyone else, um, but also that the socialist candidate, Anne Delgau, who is the mayor of Paris, um, received less than 2% of the vote, and she is from the other mainstream party, what used to be a mainstream party, the socialists, which are the center-left party. So it's really an upset in terms of if we look back to pre-2017, who the main parties in France were, it's really a continuation of this kind of decimation of the main political parties in France, the center-right and the center-left, and a rise, a continuing rise of these, for Macron, really what's been called a radical centrist party um, and movement. And then, of course, on the extremes, Marine Le Pen's far-right Party and Jean Luc Mélenchon's far left.
1: And so, before we talk about the the different people involved here, could you give us just a run through of what the the electoral process is like in France? Right, it may seem a bit weird to people who are not as familiar.
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's not as intuitive for an American audience, I think. Um, so, in France, we have two rounds to the presidential election. Typically, it takes place in May. This year, it was actually in April. The first round was on. April 10th, Sunday, April 10th. It always takes place on a Sunday. And the second round takes place two weeks later, again on a Sunday. And this year it'll be on April 24th. Um, What's important is that we have many, many parties in France and the barrier to entry to be able to um, be a candidate in this first round is lower relatively. Um, You need 500 signatures from elected officials to be able to present yourself, but otherwise the requirements are, are fairly minimal. Um, of course, it's a challenge to get 500 signatures, and this weeds out a lot of people. But that's why, you know, I only read to you maybe half of the candidates who made it and have results reported in this first round, and I'm looking at over 10 in total. So you have a crowded field um, in this first round of the election, and the two candidates who received the highest percentage of the vote in the first round of the election make it to the second round, which, as I said, takes place two weeks later. Of course, in theory, if someone were to get an absolute majority already straight out of the first round, that is more than 50% of the vote, that person would automatically win the election. But that has never happened. And so this time, as in 2017, we're going into a second round where Macron will face Marine Le Pen.
1: Yeah. And, and so I'm curious to break down the results a little bit, like the, these preliminary results. What was, so you'd mentioned that the, the Mélenchon vote was maybe the most surprising. What what to you and to other people watching this were the most surprising aspects of, of how things unfolded?
2: I would say that the most surprising and interesting as, as a watcher of France was, yes, definitely this 20, almost 22 percent for Mélenchon that reflected so much what's called strategic voting on the left, meaning that voters across the left side of the political spectrum decided that Jean-Luc Mélenchon had the best chance of moving on as the leftist candidate to a second round. I think that surprised some people, though I think it's it was a little too surprising to some because we should remember that in 2017, Jean-Luc Mélenchon was also among the top four Um, And received 19.6% of the vote at that time. So, you know, it's a jump for him. And this is the third time that he's running for president. But I I think it still is significant to, to see that he received, you know, so many people defecting from the Greens and from the socialists in particular to his camp. But you know, we we have to be kind of cautious when saying that these people, I shouldn't use the word probably defected, because really what happened is is as I said, strategic voting, thinking that the best chance of getting a leftist um, into the Élysée would be to vote Mélenchon. But I think it's it's still really significant and shows that there was a lot of frustration with the idea that we would once again have a you know, face off between the far right and a center, center right candidate, the incumbent president. Um, And people on the left really wanted to show that there was a voice that was resistant to both of these camps that wanted to be heard and wanted to be represented in the second round. So that's definitely the first kind of surprising element, or at least worthy of note. I think it's also interesting to watch how over the past few weeks and months, Eric Zemmour, who's this extremist, even more extremist candidate um, than Marine Le Pen on the far right, how his vote has actually kind of dwindled. He really made a splash in the fall when he entered the race. Um, He's a polemicist and has long been a media presence in France. He's had a talk show on the French equivalent of Fox News, which is called CNews, and has been a columnist at the most mainstream right-wing newspaper uh, Le Figaro, so he's you know long been a figure that French people recognize, but had never formally entered politics per se, and so it was really kind of it, it made waves um, when he decided to run. For a long period, it was just rumored, but then of course it was finally announced in in the fall, and he um, initially and at the highest up to, if I'm remembering correctly, about 16%. And this caused Marine Le Pen to lose some voters because a lot of the more extremist faction of horror supporters decided that that they were more interested in, in Zemmour's brand of ideology, of far-right ideology. That didn't Last, though, um, we kind of saw his support plateau in the late fall and certainly already by January it was really looking quite different from how it had been October through December um, with now that I'm remembering November having been the peak, early November having been the peak in his support. But what, what slowly started to happen, and this was really accentuated by the war in Ukraine, Zimwolf support started to dwindle and eventually drop pretty severely as people both, I think, reacted to The fact that he has some pro-Putin, pro-Kremlin ties that he didn't do a very good job of handling once the war in Ukraine started, you know, he was he seemed to really prevaricate and be very ambivalent about um, the war in Ukraine, whereas public opinion in France was pretty overwhelmingly in support of Ukraine from the very beginning condemning Putin's war. So a lot of people started to defect to Marine Le Pen, who herself has some Kremlin ties, and maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. But she stayed pretty quiet about it um, and continued to talk about her you know, main talking points, what have been her talking points for a while, and focusing on French priorities, like people are very concerned at the moment about purchasing power, which of course can't be disconnected from the war in Ukraine. But as this was all happening... Um, Zemmour was declining, Marine Le Pen was rising, and that's why we ended up with a closer race in the week coming up to the first round. And there was a lot of fear, I think, concern, worry in France as Macron and Marine Le Pen were getting closer and closer in the polls, and it was really narrowing. But a lot of that really was that Zemmour's followers were flocking back to Marine Le Pen.
1: And, and was it closer than imagined, right? I think like one of the common news headlines or like, you know, in the third paragraph of the New York Times story about this, that type of thing that you see is like, you know, the result was much closer than people feared. And, you know, it, it creates a situation where people start to get nervous that maybe there's, you know, an actual chance that Le Pen might win in the second round. I want to talk a bit about that later, but just is it right that is it right to characterize this as much closer than expected? I know you mentioned that polling data, but even for me, like looking back, I I took a look back at what the results of the first round were in 2017. And it's, you know, it's, it's more or less the same percentile difference between the two of them.
2: Yeah. I think it's a really good thing to be kind of questioning. I think what ended up happening was that Macron was soaring so high for so much of this race and so much of this campaign. And then he received a massive bump in approval During, I would say, the two first weeks of the war in Ukraine, he was just rising in the polls very steadily and pretty quickly from February 24th when the war started to roughly, I think he peaked on March 10th at about 31%. And so I think when when people started to be so surprised about the fact that they were narrowing Um, In the polls, it was really just a reaction to, I mean, any peak ends up falling. And so, of course, after Macron reached this 31 percent, he then steadily started to go back down. It was a kind of classic rally around the flag effect, something that we also saw at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic in 2020 when Macron declared war against the coronavirus. Again, his support shot up at that time. Um, because being a wartime president, just it it has an effect, um, and people people rally around the leader. So I think part of it was was that the change that that took place over those weeks after he peaked in the polls um, made it seem like things were much tighter suddenly than they ever had been. But I think it was just really the poll stabilizing, and you're right to mention, Jacob, that the gap between Macron and Lupin in 2022 in this first round is not too dissimilar from the gap that existed between the two of them in 2017, when it was 24 for Macron against 21.3%, roughly, for Marine Le Pen. So I think it was in the context, in the historical context, for Macron, who's been a president during crises, COVID and, and the war in Ukraine, especially, um, it was a little surprising to see him drop down after having so dramatically peaked. But I think it was overall to be expected.
1: So if- it, notwithstanding those things that you mentioned, the the sort of momentary spikes in Macron's popularity it has been the case at least as far as I can tell that it hasn't really been a, a five year tenure of people falling in love with this person who was elected president and you know there have been some pretty pronounced moments of of displeasure with his his rule and his his tenure in office. Could you talk a bit about like what are the general sources of frustration within France with the with the president?
2: Yeah, I think that people are disillusioned on all sides of the political spectrum with how Macron has performed and where he's ended up falling on the political spectrum over these past five years. When he first ran his movement, La République En Marche, which I should note, I should have said this at the beginning, bears his initials, En Marche, E.M., part of the appeal was really that it was coming out of, you know, as people have said, the ashes of the French party system, and that he was really seeking to kind of obliterate this distinction between right and left and serve as a new voice in the center. And he's not the first, you know, candidate or um, politician in France to try to be a centrist candidate. François Bayrou is someone who has done this um, in the past and who now supports Macron. But People, I think, really were drawn to that, were drawn to someone who could kind of separate um, from the disillusion that came from both of the mainstream parties, the center left and the center right. And, and so I think he he did bring some hope to a lot of people back in 2017. He was making, you know, he was reaching out to the left and focusing on climate and on social inequalities, but also treating some traditional right issues as part of his platform. And so I think it was pretty convincing to people at that time that he would be able to draw from both traditions and from both ideologies and both parties. What's happened over the past five years, and this is something that's been covered, I think, pretty extensively by the American press, is that we've seen him more often than not work more closely with the right with the right side of the political spectrum. And I think the left in particular and many young people are very disillusioned by his inaction on issues like climate change and social inequalities, racism in France, etc. I think one thing that we didn't talk about earlier, but that I do want to flag is the abstention among young people specifically for these failures in this first round. Among people aged 18 to 24, 42% did not show up to the polls on Sunday. And among 25 to 34-year-olds, that rose even higher to 46%. And among those two groups, many were voting for Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who um, was, as I was explaining, representing the left vote in this first round, um, predominantly, although some people, of course, did vote for the Greens and for the Socialists. Um, but the second person in the tw- 25 to 34 age range was actually Marine Le Pen, and Macron didn't come until third. So I think there's just been huge disappointment, especially on the left, even on the center, and among young people, with this president who seems disconnected from people's everyday issues. Very arrogant is one of the main critiques. He's been called Jupiterian. Um, he concentrates power at the top. And, you know, while it's laudable in many ways to be flexible and to be able to work with different um, sides of the political spectrum. I think some people have felt that that just was unpredictable and made him hard to pin down and didn't see that as a good thing. And in fact, as one that made it very hard to know who they were voting for and who they were supporting.
1: And what do we know about the demographics of people who voted for, for both him and for Marine Le Pen? What's the general demographic breakdown?
2: That's a very good question. Marine Le Pen's voters tend to be younger, poorer, less educated, and live um, in rural areas more than urban ones. And there's a difference there that we could get into with um, Zemmour voters, who, of course, are also on the far right, but tend to be more male, older, and more educated than Marine Le Pen voters. Macron voters, on the other hand, tend to be Older, I think. Um, his high—he did very, very well among those aged over sixty-five, and they do tend to be urban and upper and middle class.
1: So, what's going to happen with the the voters who voted for Melanchol in the first round? What's the like? What's the general expectation of how they're going to come out? Because in some ways, I would imagine that's that's sort of the key question here. Like in in yeah. two thousand seventeen. The question was, like, what would happen with the people who voted for François Fillon? And now it's, you know, what happens with these people?
2: I think it's a great question. And in many ways, it's the wild card. I think that Macron will be able to gather some of the votes from Valérie Pécresse, who is the – who she was the Republican candidate, from the communist candidate, Fadon Roussel, from the green candidate, Yannick Jadot, and from the socialist, who again, even though she only got 1.75% of the vote, I think has some voters to potentially give to Macron. Um, I think those four camps will – in part, at least, uh, defect and, you know, hold their nose, as you say, and vote for Macron in the second round. But I think with the Mélenchon voters, we just don't know what's going to happen. And part of that is that You know, I can tell you a little bit about what happened in 2017, because I do think that we can learn from it. Um, In 2017, 52% of Jean-Luc Mélenchon's voters, which again was, you know, almost 20% of the French electorate, so it's nothing to sneeze at, but 52% of Mélenchon's voters chose Macron in the second round. Only 7% chose Le Pen. But then we have a little over 40% who either voted blank or submitted null ballots or actually abstained, and 24% total abstained among Minotian voters um, in that second round. So the big question for me is what percentage of the Minotian electorate will abstain? It's really an open question. My guess is that we'll see maybe half of those voters much like 2017, um, show up to support Mechol maybe a little bit less because as I, you know, we talked about this, but I think folks are really disillusioned, especially in the left. And that, of course, encompasses all of Middlesbrough's electorate. I think what what might happen is that there will still be a huge abstention. I don't expect many more. People talk about Mélenchon um, voters in the first round becoming Marine Le Pen voters in the second round because they talk about similarities in demographics, et cetera, and because of similarities in demographics, similarities in priorities. And, you know, I, I mentioned that purchasing power is a big concern for many French at the moment. I think 54% of voters named that as their number one concern going into this first round. And so I think, you know, some people have then thought, oh, maybe national voters in the first round will vote Le Pen in the second round. That just, the numbers don't show that. 2017 is is an example of that really not happening i think again it likely won't happen but the abstention is really what makes this an open question and and a more open race than we were expecting a few weeks ago one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes
1: nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt
2: until you tried it on same goes for your health care For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, And they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others. And it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of, called people by name. And here's the thing, since then every couple of months I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore and that is why I recommend Delete Me As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and make sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete.me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete.me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web, data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindelete.me.com/lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
1: And are the people, it, it's hard to say for certain, like we don't have itemized lists of voters, but is the constituency who voted for Le Pen you know, in, in 2017 Is it fairly consistent, right? Is it like the same groups of people who are voting for her then and who are voting for her now, or is it, you know, has she been able to bite off a different chunk of the population? Do we know?
2: I think it's it's probably fairly similar. I think there was some uncertainty when Zemmour entered the race and Marine Le Pen started to take actually a kind of Macronist approach where she was saying that she cared less about the division between right and left in a way that really sounded like Macron in 2017, while Zemmour was trying to abolish a different distinction, the one between right and far right. And so because she was kind of making this move to say you know, to separate herself a little bit from the strong image that she has as the far-right candidate. This is part of a longer trend for her that we can talk about. But I think at the time when there were two far-right candidates in the race who were doing quite well in the polls around 16%, 17% in early November, I think that was a time when we would have seen maybe a slightly different electorate turning out for her in 2022. In this first round. But eventually, you know, I mentioned this at the outset, but we did see strategic voting not only on the left, but also on the right. And this meant that Zemmour voters recognized on Sunday that Marine Le Pen was still their best shot at the presidency. And I think because of that, the electorate probably ended up being quite similar to her electorate in 2017.
1: You mentioned in your first answer that two of the main traditional establishment parties really did quite poorly here, like very, very poorly. Yeah. I, I wonder what you make of that, right? This will be two elections in a row where the the two candidates, you know, it's the same two candidates, but the same two parties are, are represented at the end and they're not parties that have been traditionally at the center of French politics.
2: Yeah, I think it's a trend that we're not only seeing in France, you know, it's one that we've seen in Germany as well with their center left and center right parties, um, the SPD and the CDU, also experiencing this kind of period where they do extremely poorly in the polls, as you know, in Germany, it was the Greens rising and the AFD, the far right rising, while those two parties really had to go through a moment of questioning about who they were as a party and what they stood for and why their message was no longer resonating with voters. I think we've seen the same thing in France in many respects, that these two parties, the Republicans on the center right and the Socialist Party on the center left, were just no longer in touch with voters and really offering something in terms of program and in terms of strategy that was resonating with people and making people think, oh, you know, that's the person who represents um, what I need and who will represent me the best. So it's it's a broader trend, but I think also in France it has to do, the demise of the left in particular, with a very disappointing for many people, François Hollande presidency from 2012 to 2017 that I think disappointed many center-left voters and really encouraged them to seek a new face on the political scene in 2017, which many found in Macron especially as he was, you know, kind of straddling left and right and, you know, doing all this outreach, as I discussed, to the left. So I I think we will see a lot of soul searching in these parties moving forward, um, especially with the socialists who had as their candidate the mayor of Paris and go with their 1.75 percent. I think that's going to be – it is already cause for a lot of concern in that party, and so I think we're going to see some redefinition happening, much like we're seeing some redefinition happening in the center-right, the CDU, in Germany, since it's not in the government at the moment. I would just make one final note on the center-right, the Republicans. One kind of notable thing that has happened is that Nicolas Sarkozy, who was president from 2007 to 2012, before François Hollande, has actually endorsed um, Macron after long kind of not endorsing Bécares, the candidate of his party, and kind of remaining a little bit vague about his allegiances in that respect. And so I think it's it's quite significant that he has you know gone beyond his his party allegiance to support Macron.
1: And what has the Macron campaign looked like so far? What's his message been? Right, it's sort of difficult to to replicate the the sell that you're a you know you're bringing a new political energy when you are yourself the incumbent president. So, like, how has he? What's been his sell to voters this time around?
2: So he hasn't really had one. He's really not been campaigning, and so by virtue of not really campaigning, what he's been selling is Macron, the president. And in that sense, it's really been a referendum, at least in in these past weeks, on Macron, the head of state, Macron, who did shuttle diplomacy and continues to do some shuttle diplomacy in the context of the war on Ukraine. Um, And so it's really testing his successes domestically and on the international stage. Domestically, of course, his legacy is really, really cannot be um, disassociated from the gilets jaunes, the yellow vest protests, um, which started after a proposed increase in a fuel tax on the international stage. There's really been so much that he has done. I think the central aspect, the really core aspect of his um, more international doctrine, though it really is tied to France for him, is Europe's sovereignty and Europe's independence and Europe's power. The European Union really has been at the core of Macron's presidency Um, And he always says that France's success is tied to the European Union's success. And I saw a headline today that in a a rally, he judged that this election was a referendum on Europe. And that's, of course, a reference to the fact that he and Marine Le Pen are really at polar opposites of the spectrum when it comes to their position on Europe. But I think, so really, um, what he's been This non-campaign shows that he is really relying heavily on how voters judge that he has done over the past five years, rather than really offering a positive program. And that's really what makes the next few weeks so crucial. He's going to have to defend a positive vision for France moving forward. He won't be able to continue to rest on the legacy of the past five years, good or bad, to kind of propel him in the polls So, of course, and we can talk more about this, the war in Ukraine has had an effect on the polls um, and on approval of Macron. This is something I, I talked about, of course, but I think that that's the that's a big thing that I think could continue to really upset the race and change the dynamics. Although that said, It's in many ways been only good for Macron and then quite neutral so far for Marine Le Pen. So another thing that we might see Macron do as he really switches into campaign mode finally, because he refused to do debates before this first round, as he moves into campaign mode, I think we might see him, of course, attack his opponent um, which is, of course, what, what is done moving into a second round where it's a two-person face-off. But I think he also might really try to dig into these pro-Kremlin or pro-Putin ties and tendencies that we see on the far right and make sure that she's really scrutinized for this in the media, because that hasn't happened really yet. will. Um, Zimou- came under heavy scrutiny for it, did not respond well, and lost many votes, who went to Marine Le Pen because of it. But she also, she has a famous photo that caused quite a bit of a sur, again recently, um, of a handshake with Putin taken in 2017 when she was trying to boost her international credentials ahead of that first round in that election. I think that he might bring up again and try to emphasize that he is the president for democracy and you know, really try to criticize her proximity to Putin. And also she took out a loan in 2014 from a Russian bank. And I think that's another thing that he might be able to criticize and convince voters is a real reason for concern. So I think it's going to be kind of a, a tough game for Macron to play, both on the one hand, trying to really offer a positive vision that's new and doesn't, you know, elicit the same kind of disillusionment that many voters are feeling, something that really can inspire. And on the other hand, trying to make sure that he is attacking his opponent and showing voters that he really is the person who should be given another five years to lead France.
1: Yeah so what does the next 2 weeks look like? Like is it is it the case that you're going to see like a massive uptick in like TV ads in France? Like what is what does it feel like to be in the last 2 weeks of a of a presidential race?
2: I think it's going to be very very hectic because we'll finally be seeing Macron actually running a campaign, traveling, meeting voters, talking to them about, you know, the really grassroots everyday issues that haven't so much been addressed while he's been um, so preoccupied with the war and with diplomacy. I think he'll be really dealing with people who are you know, concerned and worried about the effect of these rising gas prices, and so it'll be really important for him to not stay in Paris but really, go around France and talk to voters and try to build a network and build his movement outside of the capital. That's something that he's really struggled with over the past five years. His results in um, municipal and regional elections have consistently been disappointing, and I think that that's kind of the big Achilles' heel for him going into this second round. Is still that he lacks that kind of um, support around the country that Marine. Been really has because of who her electorate is. So I think it's it's just going to be a flurry of different meetings and of big pronouncements by the candidates about each other and about the state of France. I'm curious to see, just because I work on Europe as well, um, how much of a role Europe will play in the campaign. I think Macron is really trying to make that a big thing in the campaign. Of course, a big topic and a big theme. That's in many reasons because that would be a win for him. I think most people would agree that the way in which Macron has been able to reinforce Europe and prove that Europe can be strong and can support member states when needed, particularly, for instance, at the beginning in the spring of 2020 with the relief fund um, for COVID-19. I think that it's just a big victory for him to prove that Or his ability to prove that Europe matters um, and can make a change in, you know, even domestic politics and people's situations at home. So by making it a referendum on Europe, it would definitely in his mind at least, play in his favor. So I think we will continue to see a lot of that, because even though Marine Le Pen, who at one time was advocating a Frexit, like Brexit, Britain leaving the European Union, that's no longer something that she's advocating. But many analysts say that the vision that she currently has for Europe, um, which is, of course, what she calls a Europe of nations, of sovereign nations. Sovereignty is an important concept for her and for many on the right and far right. That effectively would slowly disintegrate the European Union as we know it today. And so I think having to defend a vision of the European Union for Marine Le Pen would be very tough. Of course, you might say, Well, the everyday French voter probably doesn't care much about what happens in Brussels and, you know, this web of bureaucracy that is the EU. I think that's possible. And so I think this strategy might actually be a flop, but I think it will be really interesting to see which issues the two candidates focus on. I alluded before to Marine Le Pen's kind of softening in recent years. This is a strategy that's, you know, been called de-demonization um, or detoxification, kind of a purge of the more extremist aspects of far right ideology. In her discourse, uh, rhetoric, language, party platform, etc., trying to focus away from the traditional far-right issues of immigration and security and law and order, and more trying to shift towards the issues that the most people in France are concerned about, namely purchasing power and the prices of of everyday goods like fuel, etc., that really are hitting home for so many people with rising prices right now. It's a message that's really resonating, has been for a while, but I think is especially today. And so the big, I think, challenge for Macron will be to show that he too has a good response to French people who are suffering from those particular issues because that's something that he has not done the best job of answering so far over the past 5 years and you know this is why so many see him as out of touch especially with everyday french people who aren't living in the capital and in other more affluent areas of france so we're going to see this this battle i think between Marine Le Pen who seems to have a better grasp of what people are concerned about and worried about and want to see a president focus on and Macron who will need to really defend that he is ready to tackle those issues head on and first and foremost.
1: And do you expect to see anything like a sort of quasi never trump phenomenon happening where you know there's a whole collection of candidates who did not make the top 2 in the last in this you know in this past round of elections? Is there any sort of tradition of those people, you know, formally endorsing one candidate or the other sort of, you know, especially if one of the two candidates is Marine Le Pen putting their foot out, telling voters to, you know, vote for the other guy?
2: I think it's very possible. There is such a thing as the Republican front um, in France that tries to be raised. To make sure that the far right doesn't make it to the presidency. So, I think the equivalent that we might see of a never Trump phenomenon would be really prominent political figures across the center right in particular, standing up and calling affirmatively for people to vote for Macron. A lot of what we're seeing is people saying, you know, don't give your vote to Marine Le Pen but not necessarily explicitly endorsing Macron. So, I think it will there there is a chance that we might see more of that kind of never Trump phenomenon. I do want to kind of caution or give a caveat, which is that this isn't the first time that a far-right candidate has made it this far. It's happened 3 times. It happened in 2002, in 2017, and today. And so, I think You know, just as a note of caution, I think it it might not happen quite to the extent that we saw it happen in the US, just because it isn't the first time. But that said, I think we will certainly still see a movement because behind Marine Le Pen's de demonization and detoxification is still a very racist, xenophobic. And bigoted program that belongs squarely on the far right, despite this kind of softening of rhetoric and softening of her image. One thing that she's done recently is really try to rebrand as someone very relatable, and she plays up how much she likes her cats. But that's, I think, something that is not representative of really what has stayed below the surface, which is her extremist program.
1: So to close here, just tell me what what are you going to be looking out for in, in two Sundays when we're, you know, it's 4 p.m. here on the East Coast and we're looking at what the election results might be. What are the types of things you're going to be, you know, particularly watching for to get a sense of, of how things might be unfolding?
2: So I think there are a few things, but first I will note that we have media blackouts in France ahead of both rounds of the election. So from midnight on the Friday until people leave the polls, we do not have media coverage of the election. So there's a funny phenomenon where right before these elections, people have to you know, look illicitly to Belgium to see polls and see what the latest numbers are. But the idea behind this is to try to not influence voters' voting intentions unduly at the very last minute. But I think leading up to this second round, the big thing that I'm going to be watching is the debate between Macron and Marine Le Pen on April 20th. So in 2017, the debate was really, really monumental because it was a failure for Marine Le Pen. She really didn't do well, and many people attribute part of Macron's, you know, pretty devastating win that year to bad performance in the debate on her part much stronger performance um, from Macron. So I think in many ways she's learned from the mistakes that she made in 2017, including, as I've said, this change in her image and the softening of her tone. But I think she also will have learned and is likely to perform much better in the debate in a couple of weeks, in about 10 days now. So I'll be watching her performance there very closely, and of course, I'll also continue to watch the war in Ukraine, and specifically how Macron tries to confront, if he does, Marine Le Pen on her ties to the Kremlin and to Putin, and whether that resonates with voters.
1: And we are going to leave it there. Agneska, thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much, Jacob.
1: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. Here, you also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. You can join us later this April, for example, when we'll be hosting a joint live show with Georgetown Law about the implications of the Russian invasion on the international legal system. You can rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Shatter, and the latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. And you can check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patiahau, and your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, and as always, thanks for listening.